Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 118, Psalm 118, and uh, it's a psalm about praising God for his everlasting mercy, and it was neat, we just, you know, sang that last song about, you know, his, his, his love endures forever, uh, it's his everlasting mercy, and I entitled the message, God is good, and all of them cover, you know, our God in that way, God is good. Now, this <clears throat> is a psalm that the psalmist is making a public announcement of praise. It's, it's, a, it's the, uh, the big finish, if you will, of a group of psalms that, again, we call the, the Passover psalms or the Hallel psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. Uh, the word Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. And hallelujah comes from this Hebrew word Hallel. These psalms were probably sung by Jesus on the night before his death. The outline of the psalm goes like this. First of all, there's a call for the praise of God among, his redeem, among the redeemed, verses 1 through 4. Second, there's a report of confidence in the Lord, verses 5 through 9. Third, a report of God's deliverance in a time of trouble in verses 10 through 14. Number four, there's the praise of the Lord by the righteous in verses 15 through 18. Fifth, the announcement of the psalmist that he would enter the gate of the city to praise the Lord in verses 19 through 21. I just thought my eyes were going dim, that's all. <laughs> verse, uh, and then sixth, the picture of the rejected cornerstone, verse 22 through 24, which is cool. We sang a, a song about him, our, our Lord being the cornerstone. And seven, the shout of Hosanna by the people in praise of God in verse 29. The theme of this psalm is confidence in God's eternal love. God's love is unchanging in the midst of a changing world and of changing situations, which gives us security. The author, we don't know who it is. The author is anonymous. So let's begin now with Psalm 118, verses 1 through 4. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. And let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. Can we say tonight, can each one of us say, His mercy endures forever? Let us all give thanks to the Lord, as it says here in verse 1, because He's good. God is good. The psalm is connected by thanksgiving through one, verses 1 through 4 and 28 and 29. Because this is one of the purposes of the Hallelujah Psalms. And we have met these, this, this threefold address before in Psalm 119, I'm sorry, 115, verses 9 through 11, where it says, O Israel, trust in the Lord, He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, He is their help and their shield. And we saw that here in verses 1 through 4 with Israel and the house of Aaron and those who fear the Lord. His mercy endures forever. Now, again, man's situation may change many times during his lifetime. But God's merciful, loving kindness, it never ends. And it endures forever. It's everlasting. The nation Israel, in verse 2, should absolutely praise God for all the blessings and privileges that God has poured out upon her. Paul said in Romans 9, 1 through 5, when Christ as my witness, with Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. 
my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, that is cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as human nature is concerned. His human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. The house of Aaron in verse 3 should thank God for the great privilege of serving in the sanctuary. You know, Aaron's priesthood had the the privilege of serving God in the sanctuary and at the altar. And then verse 4, he said, those who fear the Lord, this would include all of God's faithful people, Jews and Gentiles alike, the upright in heart who faithfully obeyed his word and feared his glorious name. God's people today have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Paul says that in Ephesians 1, 3. And and so we should, without question, praise his name as well. Look at verses 5 and 6 now. He goes, the psalmist goes on to say, I called on the Lord in distress. Notice, and the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the song that Jesus sang. He went to the cross without fear. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The mystery of it all is that God was in Christ, Paul said, reconciling the world to himself. Verse 6 here is quoted in Hebrews 13, 6. It's also found in a similar form in Psalm 56, verse 4 and 11. It's that psalm's theme, 56, it's that psalm's theme. And then Psalm 118, 6 here, it reads, what can man do to me? Well, we know that man can do a lot to us. He can oppress us. He can slander us. He can hurt me. He can hate me. He can kill me, just to name a few things. But here's the point. It's not what harm man is capable of doing to each other. All right? Psalm 18 is saying that even though evil people can do every evil thing to us, in the end, they can't really hurt us because our lives are preserved by God. The psalmist says in Psalm 56, 4, In God I trust, I will not be afraid. And it says in 118.6, And the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. You see, God is greater than than the dangers in our life. So even though we might be alone, as alone or in danger as the psalmist was, we can still say, I will not be afraid. Why? Because I trust in God. And the psalmist is victorious in God and in his relationship to him. The Lord is on my side, he says. And he is a righteous God, so he supports my righteous cause and he will support it, my cause. You know, if we're on God's side, he's on ours. And if we're with him, you know, he's with us. And he'll be with us and for us. Verse 7. The Lord is, is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. The psalmist says, the Lord is for me among those who help me. Without him, I couldn't help myself. Nor could any of my friends that I have in this world. They couldn't help me. He is my strength, both for doing, you know, he's my strength for whatever I need to do, and he's my strength in suffering. 
And he says, I comfort myself in God. Psalm 56, 9, the psalmist says, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. And if God is for me, I will not be afraid of what man can do to me. They can all come against me if they want, but I'm not bothered by whatever they try to do. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. They can do nothing. Nobody can do nothing to you or me unless God allows it. They can't do any real damage because they can't separate me from God. They can't do anything except what God, you know, can make work for my good. The enemy is a man. He's a, he's a, he's a dependent creature. His power is limited and subject to danger, uh, subject to a higher power. So I won't be afraid of him. Isaiah 51, 12 says, Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? And Paul quotes this with application to all Christians. In Hebrews 13, 6, it says, They may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, let him do his worst. It's okay. Secondly, he's sure that he'll be too hard for them in the end. In verse 7, the psalmist says, I shall see my desire upon those that hate me. He will see, the psalmist says, he will see this desire in the end upon those who hate me. God will take care of them. He says, I will see them defeated in the plans that they have made against me. Verses 8 through 9. He says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. The people learned to trust, not in kings, not in princes, that is not in leaders, but in the Lord God alone. Again, have we learned to put our confidence totally in the Lord alone rather than in man? The psalmist says that it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. On the night that Jesus sang these words, he looked around at 11 men. One of them had already gone out to betray him. Those 11 men later on were going to forsake him. They would scatter like sheep that night. We are not to put our confidence in men. They will let us down. He says, put your trust in the Lord. Why is it better to trust in the Lord rather than man? In Charles Spurgeon's commentary on on the Psalms, which is called the Treasury of David, Spurgeon gives five answers as to why it's better to trust in the Lord rather than man. First of all, it's wiser. Why? Because God can be trusted, man can't. Second, it's surer. That is, it's a sure thing. It's risky business trusting people who are inclined to let us down. Why? Because they will definitely do it. Third, it's morally right because God tells us to trust him while at the same time teaching us that simple human beings are corrupt, they're selfish, and they're untrustworthy. Fourth, it's more, it's more morally speaking. In other words, trusting in God is more morally than trusting in man. It has a better effect on us. It has a better effect on ourselves because we grow in faith and character when we trust God. Not when we place the same kind of trust in other people. And then fifth, Spurgeon says, it's better to trust in God than man because it's a happy result. It ends in a more happy result. Things end up better when we trust God. God honors our trust by blessing it greatly. Pilots, 
They put their confidence in the instruments that are in the plane. Travelers, they trust in planes and trains and buses and boats and and cars and other modes of transportation. Every day, we have to put our confidence in something or someone. And if you're willing to put your trust in a plane or a boat or a train to get you from from place to place on this earth, how much more should we be willing to trust God to lead us through this life? Do you trust him more than any human being? Because the psalmist is making the point that it's pointless to trust anything or anyone more than God. Verses 10 through 12. The psalmist says, All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. He said, all nations surrounded me. God confused the plans of the enemies against him. He says, they surrounded me. He said, they were like bees. They were busy buzzing around. They were angry. They were buzzing all around me. But he says in verse 12, they were quenched like a fire of thorns, which burns furiously for a while, makes a lot of noise, creates a huge blaze, but then it goes out quickly and it can't do any harm. No harm that it originally threatened to do. This was the danger, or I should say the anger of David's enemies. Ecclesiastes 7, 6 says, like the laughter of a fool, like the crackling of thorns under a pot. This is the anger of the fool, which we shouldn't be afraid of any more than his laughter is to be envied. It's vanity, the psalmist says, to both, uh, and both of them should be pitied. Verse 13, you pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The, the psalmist says, they strongly attacked me. He says, but the Lord helped me. The Lord helped me to keep my feet firmly planted on the ground to keep me from falling. Our spiritual enemies would, would have taken us down a long time ago if it wasn't that God was our God, if it wasn't that God was our helper. Verse 14. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The psalm says he was my strength while I was in the fight. And it says he's my song, my victory song, now that the fight is over. My strength against the strong and my song over their defeat. That's who my God is. Now, the psalmist is far from bragging about his own confidence or boasting on his own confidence. And he gives credit for his victory, and that's where it belongs. He gives it to who it belongs. He has no song concerning what he has done. But all of his praise goes to Jehovah, the Lord who gave him the victory. You see, the psalmist knew that he was delivered. And he not only gave the credit to the Lord for that delivery, but the psalmist is saying here that God himself, from start to finish, and he says, everything in between, I owe his deliverance. I owe to his deliverance. I owe it totally to the Lord. And all the Lord's people redeemed, people can say that salvation is of the Lord. We can't give the credit to anybody else because that would be cheating the Lord of his glory and his praise. Jehovah God has done it all. In Christ, he is all. So our praise belongs only to him. Verses 15 through 18. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. 
I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has given me, he has not given me over to death. The right hand is a symbol of God's power. And by the afflictions that God laid on him, he says, according to verse 18, the Lord has chastened me severely. He said, men attack me to destroy me, but God chastened me to instruct me. He says, they attacked me with the hatred of enemies, but God chastened me with the love and the tenderness of a father. But the severity of the chastening was limited. Notice what he says. And and again, he says, you push me violently that I might fall. I'm sorry. Let's go up to verse um, 18. The Lord has chased me severely. Notice, but he has not given me over to death. The severity of his chastening was limited. And maybe he refers to the same trouble that God, who allowed and designed it for his prophet, that by it he, he would share in his holiness. In Hebrews twelve ten through 11, we read, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, that is God, for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, God trains us. He teaches us through the things that we go through, through the, the, the chastening of, it, of his hand. What men, you know, intend for evil, God uses it for the greatest good. And it's easy to say whose counsel shall stand uh, so that we don't need to be afraid. So this description of the psalmist's troubles is very applicable to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, there were many that hated the Lord. And they hated him for no reason. We, you know, when we look at it, we see that, that, that he was surrounded. They surrounded him. The Jews and the Romans surrounded Jesus. They brutally attacked him, as the psalmist is saying about himself. The devil did what he tempted him. The devil did that when he tempted him. His persecutors did that when they reviled him. Even the father himself chastened him severely, bruised him for our iniquities, Isaiah 53 says, and put him to grief that by his stripes we might be healed. God answered him, the psalmist said, when he was in his distress. Verse 5, the Lord answered me and sent me, set me in a broad place. He's saying God did more for me than I even asked for and gave me even more than I wanted. Again, a picture of Ephesians 3.20. God is able to do exceeding and abundantly above more than we ask or or think. The psalmist says he answered me and, and he set me in a large place is how it really reads. He set me in a large place. He said where I had room to do something. I had room to enjoy myself. I had room to grow. And the large place was the more comfortable because, you see, he was brought to it out of distress. Verses 19 through 21. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. Here we have an excellent prophecy about Jesus. His humiliation, his exaltation, and his sufferings, and the glory that would follow after. Again, we have this prophecy here in 19 through 21. The psalmist wants to enter the sanctuary of God to celebrate the glory of Christ that comes in the name of the Lord. Notice he says, open to me the gates of righteousness. That is the temple gates. 
Because they were closed to the uncircumcised and forbid the stranger to come near. Why? Because those sacrifices that were offered on the altar, uh, they were called sacrifices of righteousness. So those who would enter into communion with God must become acceptable to God in order to get in. And when the gates of righteousness are open to us, we must go into them. We must enter as far as we can uh, to enter to go and praise God. Our business inside God's gate is to praise Him. And we should have a longing desire to go in until gates, the gates of heaven are open to us. That we may go in to them to dwell in God's house and there we shall still be praising Him for all eternity. The psalmist said in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Secondly, the psalmist sees admission given to him in verse 20. He says, This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. It's as if he had said, The gate you knocked on is opened. You're welcome to come in. And Jesus said, knock and it shall be open to you. Now, some understand this gate to be Jesus Christ himself because we, we know that he is the way and that there's no coming to the Father except through him. He's the door of the sheep, John ten nine. He's the gate of the temple by whom only the righteous shall enter in and come into God's righteousness. It's only through Christ. And third, he promises, the psalmist promises to thank God for this favor. In verse 21, he says, I will praise you. Those who saw Christ's day, even though it hadn't come yet, saw a reason to praise God for this great possibility. Because in him, they saw that God had heard them. That God had heard the prayers of the Old Testament saints for the coming of the Messiah, and he would be their salvation. Verse 22 through 23. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Here is the prophecy itself about Christ, the Messiah. Now there's a story that the stones for the building of the Temple of Solomon were excavated far away from the building site. But these stones were so perfectly cut out and carved that they interlocked without having to use any kind of mortar so that the whole temple was built without the sound of a tool, without a trowel, without mortar, but just taking the rocks cut away from the site and brought to the temple, uh, uh, temple site all numbered and to be set according to the perfectly designed plans of those carving them out of the stone. So without mortar, they put the whole thing together with interlocking rocks. I mean, this was a great accomplishment. The story goes back that the rocks came from the quarry, okay? And as they looked at the rocks, they, 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 they couldn't figure out this one particular rock. They couldn't figure out where it went. All of the rocks seem to be in order here. All of the stones that, that, that came to the, to the building site, they all fit. But there seemed to be no place for this one stone that had come from the quarry. So what did they do? They tossed it aside and they threw it into the bushes. Of course, the building of the temple, it, you know, it took a number of years. 
So by the time the temple was completed, only the chief cornerstone was missing. Now, as the story goes, according to the story, they sent to the quarries, to the quarrymen asking, hey, we're ready to finish. We're ready to celebrate. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to have the lane of the cornerstone. So send us the chief cornerstone. The quarrymen sent back a message. Hey, we've already sent it. So the thing went back and forth. And finally, one guy guy said, hey, you know, we've already sent the cornerstone. So again, this this is going back and forth. and, And he says, I remember throwing a stone over in the bushes. And he went over and he got the stone out. And sure enough, there it was, the chief cornerstone of the whole building. Now, whether or not the story is true, the illustration is true. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone upon which the church is to be built. And he was set aside by the religious leaders and rejected by the religious leaders of Judaism. The stone that they sent aside, the stone that they rejected, God has made him to be the chief cornerstone. And upon this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. Speaking of himself. The confession of Peter that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So that when Peter was brought before the Sanhedrin and he was being challenged and he was being questioned because of the miracle of, the, of healing the lame man, Peter said, this is the stone, speaking of Christ, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. So Peter quotes this here. And he makes a direct reference to Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, who was rejected by the religious leaders of that day, and yet God had exalted him, and God made him the chief cornerstone. Verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What day is the psalmist talking about here? Well, he's talking about the day that the Lord has made, the day of salvation. That day is already over 2,000 years long. And it says, we will rejoice and be glad in it. We rejoice in the day of salvation. Verse 25 and 26. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Here in verse 25 through and 26, we have the believing cry, Hosanna which means save now. It's the, it's the word that the crowd used when Jesus rode into, into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was quoted by Jesus after he cleansed the temple for the last time, and then he wept over Jerusalem. His words were in Matthew 23, 38-39, See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The last three verses are a a powerful summary and application of the psalm. And it makes three powerful statements about God and about our relationship to him. Look at verse 27. God is the Lord and he has given us light. uh, Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. The statement, the first statement the psalmist makes is God is Lord. God is the Lord. The verse is saying that that it is Jehovah, Lord, or Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who is truly God. He's truly God. Not one of the other competing gods of of this rebellious or evil world. There's but one God. And this is the great question of religion. Not is there a God, 
But is he the true and living God? Or who is the true and the living God? There's but one. In verse 27, the psalmist says that Jehovah is the true God. God is the Lord. And that he's revealed this to us by making his light shine on us. This is the God who is being worshipped at the altar in Jerusalem. He's the one and no other. The next statement the psalmist makes, the powerful statement in, in verse 28. Notice what he says. You are my God. Verse 28. He goes on to say, he says, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. This God is the psalmist's own personal God, not just the God of Israel. Jehovah is his God. Jehovah is the one that he's placed his own personal trust in and he's made a personal commitment to this one and only God. Again, is he our one and only personal God? And then in closing, verse 29, here's the next powerful statement that the psalmist makes. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good. And here the psalmist calls on the people that he's witnessing to. He's calling upon them to thank God because this is the true God and the true living God. He is good. The psalm started and now ends with these same words. God is good. The Lord is good. And to think about the experience of the psalmist and ourselves once again, we're going to just do a brief summary. The writer, the psalmist found that God is good. Because God had been good to him personally. He had been oppressed. But God freed him from his oppression. The psalmist almost fell. Remember in his distress. But God raised him up. God gave him important work to do. Giving evidence again of God's goodness. Now. It isn't any different. For those. Who have been saved by Jesus today. Than the psalmist. What he's talking about here. We've also been freed from sin. We've also been delivered and we've also been given work to do. That being true, then we need to thank God and get to his work. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your word always, Father. We thank you for the great psalm and the psalmist's word here to us, God. And Lord, we thank you so much. Father, we we thank you for who you are. We thank you for our salvation, God. We thank you for the great deliverances, Father, that, that God, that you have given to us, God. We thank you for, for, Father, again, delivering us from all of our distresses, God, from all of our enemies, Lord. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us, God. We thank you that you are the chief cornerstone, that you are the one that we build our hopes upon and the church upon, God. We know that there's none like you, God. And Father, we know that you are the one and only true living God, creator of the universe, creator of man. And Father, I just, um, again, and thankful for, again, for what you've done and what you're doing, Lord. And Father, I pray that each one here, God, you know, as everyone uh, is, Lord, is, is a believer. God, I do pray for them. And I pray that you would walk with them, that you would just, Father, meet all of their needs, God. And that, Father, we would just continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. 
And that, Father, we would be imitators of Christ, followers of Christ, God. And that we put our trust in no man, God, but, Lord, only you. And, Father, may you bless my brothers and sisters. May you be with them through the week. And, um, God, until we meet again, God, may you minister to us that we might minister to others, God. So, Lord, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.